0: we are happy to welcome you right now in the live broadcast on Alatra TV. On today's program, Science in a Creative Society, we will talk about nuclear chemistry and the new heavy chem- uh, chemical elements and their application. Also, we will ask our guest, how does he envision a society, a creative society, and how does he envision science in a creative society? So our guest speaker today is Dr. Albert Schmidt. Uh, Thomas Albert Schmidt. He is Gregory R. Chopin Professor of Chemistry. He is a director of the Center of Actinide Science and Technology in Florida State University, USA. Good day, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> we are happy to have you with us on Alatra TV. Thank you very much for jo- joining us and finding the time for the interview. Absolutely. <laughs> also, in our conversation today, we have participants from a of International Public Movement with us. We have Diana from the University of Kentucky, USA. We have Vladimir and Zahar from Kiev, Ukraine.
1: Excellent. Nice yeah. thank you. Nice to see all of you as
2: well.
0: And also, my name is Olga um, Koftun, and uh, we have Jason Ball with us, and we are from Michigan, USA. And it's so nice to meet everybody today. Um, So today's broadcast is actually being uh, simultaneously translated into four languages by volunteers of Alatra International Public Movement uh, from different countries. And the languages are Russian, French, German, and Ukrainian. We also invite our viewers to take an interactive part of this broadcast. Please, ask your question in the comments below the YouTube video, and we will read them during the broadcast as well. So let's begin. Tom, could you please tell us, how did you get started, and how did you choose the field of science you are in right now?
1: Uh, So I'm a pretty nonlinear person. And when I began my independent research career, I was interested in a group of materials that are called thermoelectric materials. So they they convert heat into electricity. And we use these materials in every deep space probe, for example. So the Martian rover that's currently running around giving us all those incredible pictures and data about Mars, that's powered by taking heat, thermal heat from plutonium and converting that into electricity. And I was interested in making more efficient thermoelectric materials because right now those are pretty low efficiency materials. Um, And that led me to make a uranium compound, uh, not for the sake of it being a uranium compound just because it had the right properties that I was looking for. But as we were exploring the materials, parts of uh, of that compound, we fell in love with uranium chemistry and that started us down this pathway to heavy, heavier and heavier elements, and trying to understand, you know, why they're different from lighter elements.
0: Thank you so much. That's very interesting. And I know Zahar has next question for us. Okay. Yes, we have. Yes, we
3: have a question for you, Dr. Albrecht. Uh, Explain to our viewers how does the process of contain of obtaining a new heavy chemical elements take place? Simply. Yeah, so that's going to be a, a
1: long answer um, but there's no short way to do it. it it's a multi-stage process that um, primarily occurs in nuclear reactors. So you you start with uranium that you mine from the ground. there are uranium deposits all over the earth. it's actually not a rare element. Uh, We thought that a long time ago, but there are deposits on every continent. And you get enough of that together in a reactor and you start generating neutrons by spontaneous fission of the uranium. Those neutrons cause uh, cascading, um, you know, nuclear reactions. Some of the neutrons are captured by the uranium, which uh, causes it to become more unstable. And when it decays, it actually decays to heavier elements. So it'll decay, for instance, to Neptunium, and it can keep going up to Plutonium and americium, and Curium and all of those. Uh, And at each stage, you can stop and isolate those elements. And so the elements that we have in my laboratory that that I think so many people have become interested in, like, like Californium, for example... Um, that element is prepared exclusively at one reactor in the world, and that's the high-flux isotope reactor at Oak Ridge National Lab. And it's called that for a reason. It has an unusually high neutron flux, which enables you to make more and more of these rare elements. And so they have to take targets, which is really a a thin tube um, that's packed with curium, which is element 96, They put it in the nuclear reactor where it's bombarded by neutrons and some of those neutrons get captured and it decays to the heavier elements like berkelium and californium. They take that whole tube of curium, which now contains the heavier elements. They dissolve it in nitric acid and then they using robotic facilities, completely remote facilities, they separate the elements from one another because initially those, those, what we call targets that are radiated in the reactors are very radioactive, and so you can't handle them in a the normal laboratory. Yeah, so that's that's where they come from. They all come from Oak Ridge.
3: Thank you for your answer.
2: Yep. yep. Awesome. Um, so you you kind of spoke about Californium, Dr. Tom. Uh, this is a fundamental science. What is the practical application of such new elements, and how stable are they? Uh, what qualities imply a new chemical element? So uh,
1: the element is simply determined by the number of protons. So you just count the number of protons, starting with one for hydrogen, and right now we end the periodic table at 118 for oganesson, and that's it. It's just the number of protons. You can't just have protons, except in hydrogen. So there's always neutrons that go with it, and then that nucleus is surrounded by electrons. And the number of protons equals the number of electrons in any neutral atom. So that's that's the first part. Um, in terms of practical applications, when you hear names like Californium, it sounds almost science fictiony. So you assume it has no practical use. But in fact, the reason that Oak Ridge makes Californium is they're pursuing one specific isotope and it's it's called Californium 252. So the 252 is the sum of the number of protons and the number of neutrons. So Californium is element 98. So if you subtract 98 from 252, you'll get the number of neutrons that are in the nucleus as well. So it's interesting because one, it's an element that it has many practical applications And two, it's actually one of the least stable isotopes of californium. So, for example, in my laboratory, we don't use that isotope. We want a more stable isotope of californium. So we use californium-249. That one has a half-life of 351 years. And what half-life means is that's the time it takes for half of the atoms to undergo some kind of nuclear decay to a different element or elements. Um, in the case of Californium-252, the half-life is only two and a half years, so it's decaying very quickly. Um, it's, the types of radioactive decay can be variable, and as a matter of fact, a single isotope can d- decay by different pathways. There's basically probabilities for each pathway occurring. In the case of Californium-252, there's a 1% probability that the nucleus just shatters all by itself. so we call that spontaneous fission and every time a nucleus shatters it generates two or three neutrons it averages out to about 2.3 those neutrons are what cause those cascading nuclear reactions but you can use them for other things so for example if i take californium 252 and i put it say up against a piece of aluminum like like the frame of your window is probably aluminum those neutrons coming from the Californium will be captured by the aluminum and it will become temporarily radioactive. And while it's radioactive, it actually gives off um, energy. It gives off uh, x-rays specifically. And we can actually determine that that metal is aluminum based on the energy of those x-rays. So that, that might sound um, not useful, but, It turns out it's super useful. For example, if you have ore coming out of a mine, that ore is many, many elements. And depending on where the ore is coming out of the mine, it might not be the same in one location as another. In other words, the material coming out will vary in real time as it's coming out. And so what they do is they take Californium-252 and they intentionally irradiate the ore in real time as it's coming out. And then they have another detector that detects the x-rays that's coming out of the temporarily radioactive ore. And that allows them to know in real time, the element, the elemental composition of the ore. And that in turn allows them to change and optimize the processing of the ore in real time. And so that's Mm -hmm. called neutron activation analysis. And that's the primary use of Californium 252. Um, Petroleum, discovering companies also use it. so they can snake it down an oil well where, again, it's irradiating the surroundings, and they can identify oil deposits and different types of, of uh, hydrocarbon deposits by the exact same method. Um, in addition, it has been tested successfully for destroying tumors. So what they are able to show is that you could, um, you know, take sealed samples of californium252 and put them into tumors, and those neutrons would go out and destroy um, the tumor uh, moderately selectively, or I should say, in a very localized way. Um, that was actually one of the big driving forces for Californium two fifty two production. That one has fallen off, but the the neutron activation analysis has remained. The final use is that getting a nuclear reactor to turn on can be challenging. So when they're restarting a reactor, they'll often put it. 252 source into the reactor to kick off the reaction and then they can then they can remove it um, once the uranium is fissioning itself so it's it's a super useful element and it's one of very few radioactive isotopes that the u.s government has a contract with a consortium of industrial companies to produce so they have a contract every two years to produce a certain amount of californium 252 that goes off into these various um, sources, these portable neutron sources.
4: Wait, very know- interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's amazing.
4: Yeah. We also know that Californium is a very radioact- radioactive element. Is there any way you can tell us what is the nature of radiation? Why do some chemical elements have radioactive qualities while others don't? How does a chemical element know if it's radioactive?
1: Right. So it's all determined by the nucleus. So if you have too many neutrons, the nucleus will be unstable, meaning it's going to find a way of ejecting a part of it until it becomes stable. If it has too few neutrons, it is also unstable. So basically you have this kind of wedge that goes across the periodic table. If you're within the wedge, you're stable. If you're above the wedge, you have too many neutrons. If you're below the wedge, you have too few neutrons. And it'll start throwing part of its nucleus out to get into the stability wedge. Now, unfortunately, that even if it does that, when the nucleus gets really big, and basically um, anything beyond element number 83, which is bismuth, so when you hit element 84, which is polonium, Every one of those nuclei from 84 on is radioactive because they've become so large that the glue, which we call the strong nuclear force that holds the protons and neutrons together, is no longer enough to hold them indefinitely together. So so there's a bunch of pieces. If it's too heavy, it can't be stable no matter what. It doesn't matter how many or how few neutrons. And then if you're a lighter element, then you've really got to find a balance there too. Okay, so there are, multiple, um, th- there are multiple radiation decay pathways, and all of them are an attempt by the nucleus to reach its lowest energy and most stable state. That's the way the universe works. Everything goes from a high-energy situation to a low-energy situation. If it can they'll find a way. So the, the primary uh, way that heavy elements decay is by emitting what's called an alpha particle. So you, you, know, you have this nucleus with all of its protons and neutrons. It literally fires a bullet, uh, and that bullet is in the form of a helium nucleus. So two protons and two neutrons are just shot out of this nucleus so that it gets a little bit smaller. And if it does that enough times, it'll eventually end up as a stable element. So, for example, uranium will keep doing that until it becomes lead, and then it's, then it's stable. So that's one of the common forms of, the, of decay. Another very common form is called beta decay. And that's when a neutron literally tears itself apart, turns into a proton. But when it does that, it fires off an electron. So when people talk about beta particles, that's, they're talking about high-energy electrons flying out of the nucleus. So when you have alpha or beta decay, it turns out the nucleus, if you want to think about it as a ball of marbles, When, for instance, if it fires that helium particle out, that ball of marbles now has a little hole in it, and it's got to rearrange into a nice little sphere again. Okay, so when it rearranges, it actually goes from a high energy state to a lower energy state, and we have to conserve energy in this universe. And we do that during that rearrangement process by shooting out gamma rays or x-rays. So this is, in this case, just high energy light, but that still takes the energy down. So those are the three most common kinds of radiation. There are other exotic ones, um, but don't think exotic means not useful. For example, um, nuclei that have too few neutrons can be what are called positron emitters. So they actually emit an anti-electron, like real antimatter. And that sounds crazy, but if you've ever had a PET scan, that stands for positron emission tomography. And so we use, use things like sodium-22 to image body tissue, um, for instance, to detect cancer, um, you know, on a very regular basis. So exotic can still be useful, especially in the case of positrons.
3: Dr. Albrecht, we have yes, uh, yeah. more, one more question for you. You said okay. about half decay of uh, radioactive uh, chemical elements. And we want to ask you, how does an atom know that uh, it needs to decay? For example, where is this clock? Uh, the atom knows that precisely the half decay should happen. Where is this information that atom knows how to decay? And precisely?
1: Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's, this is always the... I, I really like you saying, how does the atom know? Because we talk about this... Uh, all the time. It doesn't know. Um, and it's, uh, it's very, uh, unsatisfying the answer I'm about to provide. It's a, it's simply a probability. Almost everything in, in nuclear reactions are probabilities. So you're literally, if you want to think about it, this, you know, rolling dice and, you know, if the dice, you know, add up to 12, it decays. But if it's, you know, one through eleven. It doesn't decay, and that's that's all it turns out to be. And um, if you're dealing with something that's highly unstable, and we could go into reasons why it might be highly unstable, maybe it has way too many neutrons or way too few neutrons. Um, that might make it highly unstable. There are other things that can make it like highly unstable. For example, if you have uh, an odd number of protons. And if you sum the neutrons and protons together, if that number is also odd, the nucleus is almost always unstable. If you have an even number of protons and the sum of the protons and the neutrons is also even, you usually have a much more stable nucleus. But in the end, uh, it's simply a probability. And sometimes something has a very high probability of decaying and sometimes it is a very low probability and that's determined by the number of protons and neutrons. It's, it's that simple. I mean, the origin of it, though, is, you know, how those protons and neutrons are arranged. It, you know, it turns out that they're arranged in special ways that is a strong influence on this. Uh, and, and how much energy is holding them together. So, you know, this what we call the strong nuclear force, which is actually a little bit crazy. They take a little bit of their mass and they convert it into energy and that energy is what's holding them together and sometimes it's just not enough to keep them together indefinitely which is what happens in the heavy elements and that's that's when with some probability they will fall apart eventually yeah but i know it, uh, probabilities are always dissatisfying because you want like a reason why is it 351 years and um, unfortunately it's it's
0: rolling dice Okay, thank you so much for your answer, and I know Vladimir has next question for you, so we will have him up on the screen. Okay.
5: Uh, deal with uh, uh, obtaining uh, new chemical elements, so each, this is uh, fundamental sciences and this is very important. And we have a question. Uh, How does it happen that a certain combination of uh, protons, uh, neutrons and electrons are built in a certain way and this uh, set uh, sets all the chemical and physical properties? Uh, So, for example, when we cook uh, the meal, uh, we exactly know uh, what uh, are the steps we need uh, in order to cook it. uh, we can remember this information, or it can be written in some uh, cookbook by some chief. Uh, based on this analogy, uh, where is this uh, recipe? Where is formed from a uh, different combination of elementary particles? We obtain uh, an array of uh, chemical elements with, with a, a significant differ, uh, different properties physical and chemical properties. So, uh, there is information is uh, saved.
1: So, the, the easiest way to do it, the, the chemical properties are determined solely by the number of electrons, that's the first thing, and where those electrons are located uh, around the nucleus. So, it turns out that the electrons are basically in orbits around the nucleus. You could think about it as almost like Our solar system, with the sun as the nucleus and the planets as electrons going out from it, that model is actually called the the Bohr model, meaning Niels Bohr. Uh, But it's, you know, that that model is now more than 100 years old. Um, And even during Niels Bohr time, Niels Bohr's time, we modified it significantly. But it's still a useful way to think about it. Is the electrons are orbiting around the nucleus? They're not always actually. They're never going in a circle. But where those electrons are located determines the chemical properties of the element. So it's the number and their location that determines the chemical properties. So, you know, we have this, this really nice periodic table. I always have one, you know, next to my, my desk. And this literally tells you the number of electrons um, that an element has. So I know if I'm in, in this row, for example, where this finger is, that I have eight electrons. Um, If I'm, for instance, over in boron's row, I know I have three electrons. And that number tells me immediately what the chemical properties are going to be. So, for example, if I go back to to neon, which has eight electrons, what that tells me is it has the maximum number of electrons it can have uh, around its nucleus. It doesn't want to give up any electrons. It doesn't want to take any electrons. And what that means is that element is going to be very unreactive. And all the elements above it, in this case only helium, and all the elements below it, and that goes all the way down to oganesson, Sun um, should be chemically very unreactive. And we call those noble gases because they are unreactive. In contrast, you go to the boron row, which just has um, three electrons, what it's trying to do is it's trying to either gain or lose electrons to become like a noble gas. And so boron, for example, could give up three electrons, in which case it's like helium, or it could uh, potentially gain five electrons and become like neon. And it's that process of gaining and losing electrons that determines the chemical properties of, of all elements in the periodic table. And so it's... it's The number and where they're located and how they need to modify that number to obtain the lowest energy configuration. Just like the nuclei decaying away, what elements are trying to do is go to their lowest energy state. And they do that by gaining and losing electrons. That's where all the chemical properties come from.
0: Thank you so much for your answer. And the next question is, as far as we know, you and your colleagues are in, engaged in obtaining and studying materials that are highly sensitive to ionizing radiation, the so-called photoluminescent uranium organic framework. They are being used in medicine in the analysis of the background radiation of the environment and also as a cosmic radiation detectors. This is very interesting. And could you tell us in more detail what kind of materials
1: and what is the
0: future for their use?
1: Right. So this, uh, first I should tell you, this was a a neat result of a collaboration between, it was an international collaboration that brought, you know, those discoveries to light. So there are materials that are called scintillators, which is a a fancy name that if you you bring in a high-energy Radiation like an X ray. So it comes in and hits the material. The material will actually create light, it's usually visible light, as the result of that. So that process is called scintillation. If you want something um, to really absorb the radiation well, you want a heavy atom. Okay, well, uranium is a great heavy atom. And uranium 238, which is the main isotope in natural uranium, has a half life of four and a half billion years. So even though it's radioactive, it's barely radioactive. So uranium really shouldn't scare people. It's like being afraid of your shadow. I mean, don't eat it. You know, that's that's basically, and you'll be fine. It's radiation. It's going to do anything. So there's nothing wrong with using a uranium material for a technological application. But basically, that big heavy atom is going to capture um, that that X-ray, and it's going to convert it to visible light. But it turns out that convi- that conversion process requires a lot of light atoms, like hydrogen atoms. And so these materials, which are called metal-organic frameworks, are a combination of a heavy atom, meaning the metal, and a light atom, and light atoms, meaning the organic part of it. And so what these materials enable you to do is detect cosmic rays. You can use them in medical applications where you're doing scanning. And, you know, that one will likely result in some functional... Um, devices especially for radiation detection you know it's it's one thing when you're looking at a geiger counter and you're seeing a little meter moving but instead if you're seeing like light flashes or maybe the whole screen lights up that's a lot easier to, to read for a human and so that was a that was a neat discovery and, and we turned that from an idea into something functional in well under a year that one went fast it, science usually doesn't go that quick <laughs> that 's great, and so what 's the future you 're seeing with this discovery so there 's a lot of need uh, for detecting gamma rays. Of course, you could think about you know astronomy applications where maybe you 're looking at uh, black holes, for example, because you get enormous bursts of x rays as material drop past the event horizon. Um, but you know more locally, you want to be able to detect radioactive materials um, you want to be able to detect them. In very safe scenarios, say you're running a nuclear facility and you're confirming that there's no material where you don't want it to be, but also, you know, we live in a world where uh, nuclear material occasionally finds its way into places we don't want it to be, and we need to be able to find it, and, uh, and these sorts of materials would allow you to detect it um, pretty easily.
2: Tom, from From what we know based upon your research uh, and work with your colleagues there 's a conclusion uh, within the laws of quantum mechanics uh, that are somewhat inconsistent with einstein 's theory of relativity. Is there a need to possibly revise this theory could you tell us more about it please
1: um, i don 't think it well okay i don 't think it needs to re- revision um, the The issue with the heavy elements is there they're strongly affected by relativity, whereas light elements really aren't. And this is, it gets kind of crazy to think about it, but, you know, here you have your nucleus and your electrons moving around it. And the velocity that they move around the nucleus is determined by the charge of the nucleus, okay? So as that charge gets bigger and bigger, we start at plus one charge at hydrogen. And if we go to something like Californium, you're already up at a charge of 98, okay? And this Mm -hmm. really causes the electrons to move extraordinarily fast. As a matter of fact, by the time you're at element 98, uh, that electron is moving at more than 60% of the speed of light, okay? So strange things happen when you start approaching the speed of light. And this is where the term relativity comes into play because as an external observer, looking at that object moving at something that's approximating the speed of light, strange things start to happen. So for example, it looks like the electron gains mass. It starts acting like a heavier object than it is as it goes faster and faster. Now what really does happen is if it was a slow-moving electron and would normally say be out here with the nucleus in the middle, if it's moving really fast, because of its increasing mass, it'll shrink in, okay? And as I said earlier, where, you, where the electron is relative to the nucleus controls its chemical properties. And so in these heavy elements, when those electrons start moving super fast, they start defying our expectations. And so we can't take a light element like iron, for example, which isn't even that light, but compared to uranium, it's light. We can't take iron whose electrons really are not strongly affected by relativity and successfully predict the properties of an element like uranium where the electrons really are being affected by relativity. And it's all a matter of how um, highly charged the nucleus is. It's just that simple. And so those electrons really start zipping around. Now, what you said earlier though, is a different problem. It's not that relativity needs to be modified. It's that the theoretical models we have right now have a very tough time capturing all of the relativistic effects that exist. So it's not a problem with the theory. It's a problem with the application of the theory. So doing these kinds of calculations to explain and predict the properties of heavy elements is really hard. And so that's still state-of-the-art right now. Um, you know, Paul Dirac, who won the no- Nobel Prize um, in the early 1900s, said that we basically knew all of the rules of quantum mechanics and all of the rules of relativity. We had all the equations, but he said these equations are too hard to solve. And I would tell you that 100 years later, the sit- that situation is still true. Certainly we've made massive progress, but we have a problem providing exact solutions to the same equations that were generated a hundred years ago. So that's where the problem exists. It's not a, a theory problem. It's actually correctly treating the theory problem that's that we're struggling with. And this has everything to do with computing power. And you know, when you're making a, an approximation, um, is it a good approximation? You know, how do you test if it's a good approximation? And this is really the cutting edge of theory right now is, is trying to, correctly predict how a heavy element behaves with these strong relativistic factors occurring. Thank you
0: thank so you. much. Yes, okay. thank you. And I know uh, Diana has next question for you. Go ahead, Diana. Um,
4: Thomas, uh, to be honest, when you were talking as a student, I feel like All of my, like, you know, like as a student, I learned a lot in general chemistry about chemistry, physics, like engineering and stuff. And I feel like right now, by listening to you, my whole puzzle just solved. And I feel like where the next question comes from. I I really enjoyed this conversation because I seriously have a big picture in my my mind. How like, I feel like science sometimes is very complicated, but right now it's everything just kind of makes sense. And and yeah. And another question that we have, is it possible to create a material that would effectively neutralize ionizing radiation? For example, uh, there is a problem, and is it relevant to nuclear power plants of spaceship? How does neutralization in radiation occurs?
1: So there's a um, neutralizing radiation, is, uh, that's a, a broad term, because it would depend on the kind of radiation that you're dealing with. So for instance... Let me start with the hard one. The hardest one of all to stop is neutrons. And nuclear reactors stop the neutrons from flying everywhere and causing problems by just surrounding the the radioactive fuel with water. It turns out water is, especially if you have a lot of water, is a really excellent radiation shield, something that simple. So one of the really useful radioactive um, isotopes is called cobalt-60. So every time you touch your cell phone, you're touching some cobalt. It's a really useful metal. It's not radioactive. But if you feed it one more neutron, uh, it becomes radioactive. And cobalt-60 is so radioactive that if you ever see a lot of it, it glows blue. Whenever something is glowing, you should be a little apprehensive about it Um, because if it's glowing, it's really radioactive. So we still use this super radioactive form of cobalt, which is giving off a lot of gamma rays. We use it to sterilize tissue, for example, that we're going to graft onto burn patients. Um, We use it if we're going to say, put a computer chip in outer space and we're worried about how that computer chip might respond to cosmic radiation. We blast the computer chip with cobalt 60 and see if it starts falling apart or malfunctioning. So, Again, water works really well for shielding these gamma rays. Um, I spent some of my career at Auburn University, and we had a very large cobalt-60 source there, and it was 15 feet down in a pool of water. And, you know, you could stand above the pool and look down. There was no detectable radiation above the pool, and the water did a great job. But you don't often have 15 feet of water um, to carry around with you to protect you from radiation. So there are simpler things. So if I go back to neutrons, wax, anything with lots of hydrogen. So wax is just is just a, it's like gasoline all glommed together. It's a hydrocarbon. It's tons of hydrogen and hydrogen atoms stop neutrons, which is why water works so well. Um, So for example, in my laboratory, if we have an isotope that we know gives off a lot of neutrons, we go to like the. The hobby shops that sell the big storm candles, you know, those giant ones that you use like during a hurricane, we drill a hole in the middle of the storm candle and we just put the material in the middle of that and the wax just stops the neutrons. Um, Now, wax is terrible for gamma rays. So if you want to stop gamma rays, as I was saying earlier when we were talking about that scintillation material, you want something heavy. So something like lead is really, really good at, at uh, at stopping gamma rays. It turns out the other two are the easiest. So gamma and neutrons are the ones you have to think about. How much lead do I need? How many hydrogen atoms do I need? Alpha particles are the easiest of all, even though they have the most energy. So, for example, if I took my hand, um, so I have a rock right here. So let's just say this was uranium and I put this in the middle of my hand. Uranium gives off a lot of alpha particles, but it turns out those alpha particles won't even go through the outer uh, layer of skin on my hand. So they're just stopped like that. Even passing through the air, if if this is uranium, they only move through about two millimeters of air before they hit a gas molecule like oxygen or nitrogen and are stopped. So for alpha particles, you don't have to worry. Alpha particles are only a worry if somehow you get them into you. So for example, and this is, uh, this would be true like in a mining situation. If In the old days when, when uranium was mined by people, it's mostly done by robots now, you know, they're down there with some jackhammer, you know, powdering this stuff and then inhaling the dust, you know, they're getting uranium in their lungs. And so now that alpha particle is striking sensitive lung tissue and you can have a problem. So you certainly would never want to aerosolize an alpha emitter
0: and inhale it.
1: Beta particles um, are a little more difficult than alpha particles, but not much. Um, A a piece of paper will stop most beta particles. A piece of plastic will stop almost any beta particle. And so, what you really want to think about are mixtures of these things. You know, something, you know, with heavy elements and hydrogen, um, you can stop almost any kind of radiation that way. So, this, when we have nuclear incidents, these, these, the sphere that people have that are even one mile from the incident, again, it's like being afraid of your shadow. Radiation falls off exponentially from the source. So you know, in a nuclear lab, um, like the one that I run, you know, we have a saying, you know, if, if you don't like the radiation where you're standing, take, take one step back. And if you take one step back, the radiation just drops off. And so you can imagine that like a serious thing like Fukushima, if you're a mile from Fukushima, I'm I'm sorry. There's just there's no more radiation. It's yeah. yeah. Don't be afraid of your shadow.
4: That's true, and I feel like there is a coincidence because I actually worked with cobalt sixty swords with Dr. Crawford, but I worked at the University of Kentucky while well, he worked at Los Alamos. Okay. And but I actually worked with two microcurrig, but it wasn't a big radiation level. But I feel like it's a very coincidence, and there is a picture how there's um alpha data pictures and they're just all like summed up.
1: Right, right. Yeah, cobalt-60 is really useful. It's an amazing yep.
3: isotope. Yep,
2: thank
3: you. <laughs> Dr. Albrecht, yes, we have uh, the next question for you. For example, how can we protect uh, uh, the human health and nature environment from this radioactive contamination? How can we protect it?
1: Or maybe you work, or your project works with this? So that's, that's multifaceted, um, and there's, there's a lot of action that needs to be taken in this regard. So, first of all, um, right now we really don't have a good way of generating electricity, and I think every single one of us has felt in some way the effects of climate change. Um, that climate change is caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the increased carbon dioxide levels. Nuclear power is the only way we have right now of generating a lot of energy without producing a lot of carbon dioxide. As a matter of fact, most of the carbon dioxide that comes from nuclear energy production is from the mining of the uranium. It's from running that machinery. It's not from down-end when you're actually fissioning it. Now, reactors turn out to be very uh, difficult to build, Uh, Certainly, we know how to do it, but it takes sometimes decades to bring nuclear reactors on site, and they cost billions of dollars um, to build as well. And so, it's hard to get investors to invest long-term anymore. Investors really like to be in and out uh, relatively quickly these days. They want turnover and profits in under a year in many cases. And this is a change in worldwide mentality where we've all become so impatient. Uh, That it's actually hurting us. Um, Right now, it's hurting us in the near term, but it really hurts us in the long term uh, as well. So, most of our nuclear reactors throughout the world are pretty old. And everybody heard about Fukushima, but what wasn't said is those reactors were the oldest reactors in Japan. They were more than 40 years old. Today, we have reactor designs that would never have undergone those catastrophic problems. Uh, if those reactors had been new at Fukushima. In other words, you would have never heard of Fukushima. So the problem was that at Fukushima, they lost power, it stopped the water from flowing, you need to cool the fuel, the fuel overheated, bad things happen. Um, Today we have passive cooled reactors, so the new ones being built, um, they don't need the water being circulated, it's passively circulated. We also have other reactors that don't use water at all, like what are called molten salt reactors or lead-cooled reactors or sodium-cooled reactors. Those really can't melt down. So the first thing is we really need to upgrade the reactors uh, throughout the world. Uh, We need to make the licensing process much more efficient. Uh, Right now, it's extraordinarily bureaucratic. Uh, We need to encourage investors to think long-term Uh, for the good of the world, really. Um, But it's certainly profitable because once those are online, I mean, some of these reactors have been running for in excess of 40 years. And so they should think about it in that sense. Now, uh, nuclear waste is generated from these reactors, but we have a way of dealing with that too. So, for example, the kind of reactors we use nowadays uh, are what are called light water reactors. And those are what makes most of our electricity. They generate, um, you know, in relative terms, a small amount of nuclear waste, but it turns out we can put those in a different kind of nuclear reactor that's called a fast reactor. The difference between light water reactors and fast reactors is light water reactors use really slow-moving neutrons. The water actually slows the neutrons down. Fast reactors don't use water, so the neutrons just zip along. Those fast-moving neutrons fission everything. And so you can burn and actually get energy out of a lot of the things produced in a light water reactor using a fast reactor. So you need to couple those two reactors together. And at the end of the day, you get more energy and you produce less waste. Finally, nuclear fuel itself, um, it basically starts to get ruined by the fission process. And it's largely not usable after we've only fissioned 1% of the available uranium in the fuel. And so we need to recycle that fuel. And many nations do recycle fuel. So France recycles, Russia recycles, Japan recycles, England recycles. Um, the United States was the pioneer in, in these recycling technologies. But because of, for political reasons, we don't recycle right now, which is which is unfortunate. We need to bring that online. We have done it historically. So if you recycle the material, you also reduce the ultimate waste waste. Um, at the end of the day, you are going to need a repository. So these are deep underground chambers that you put the nuclear waste that you can't um, deal with by any other way. So there's a number of things about those repositories. The United States is the only one that's functioning right now. It's called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. If you ever go to the Carlsbad Caverns uh, in New Mexico, you're very close to with the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. Now that repository can only be used for defense waste, so civilian waste from power reactors can't go there, but they're talking about a WIP two which would get power re- or which would get power reactor waste so again, much like building reactors, these repositories are taking many decades to get built and licensed and there's a lot of nonsense going on uh, in getting them approved they're incredibly safe um, so getting their locations approved also needs to be accelerated much like the licensing process for reactors and the final thing is that we need to ensure that the materials going into the repositories can't enter into the environment so for example if one of these repositories um, somehow got groundwater into it and we go to great lengths to ensure there is no groundwater near them that can be done but let's just you know, come up with some science fiction scenario where groundwater finds a way into a repository. What we want in there is a material trapping those radioactive elements that is so resilient that it doesn't matter if it's submerged in water. It's not going to dissolve or break apart and get into the environment. And we have the ability to do some of those things right now, but but we want better materials. And so that, that's one of the things that my group focuses focuses on is what we call advanced waste forms. So these are, are materials that withstand radiation damage. You can put them in water. They don't dissolve. Um, you can heat them. They don't corrode. Uh, so these are these are the resilient waste forms we're looking for. So the question you asked is among the most complicated that can be asked um, from, a, from a number of standpoints. But we have paths forward for all of these Um, for all of these issues. And in many cases, there's still much more to to discover, which is why young people uh, need to be getting involved in this this line of research.
3: Thank you very much. And uh, how how do you think, uh, what is the opposite side of radiation? Uh, For example, how can we use radiation for other benefits? For example, in medicine and uh, so on, or industry?
1: Right. I mean, we use radiation all the time. I mean, all, all of you have heard of people getting radiation treatment for cancer. So, for, you know, cancerous cells uh, divide much more quickly than non-cancerous cells. And it turns out that makes them more susceptible to damage by, by radiation than a normal cell. So if you have an area that has cancer, um, they can intentionally irradiate you with x-rays or gamma rays to destroy the cancerous cells. Um, now, that's not particularly well-targeted. It's a very old and still very useful form of cancer treatment. Today, one of the renaissances that's going on in nuclear sciences is, is taking biological molecules that go to very specific locations in the body, so that means you're targeting a location in the body, maybe your pancreas or your liver, and you attach a radioisotope to that biological molecule that will only go to the liver. Well, let's say you had liver cancer. You bring in this radioactive ion, and it decays in the liver. And the nice thing is, as I was saying earlier about alpha particles, is they have a very short path length. So if you can deliver them straight to the cancerous area, they will only destroy about two layers of cells around where they are. So no need for surgery, extraordinarily Um, targeted uh, radiation treatment and that's something that's moving forward right now so um, places like Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory um, is pioneering some of this work Los Alamos National Laboratory is pioneering some of this work Um, Oak Ridge uh, is as well and so there's there's a lot of people involved worldwide um, in what's called uh, well, it has many forms but a lot of people call this alpha therapy uh, where you deliver a radioactive ion exactly where you want it and have it destroy the cancerous area. So those are two ways in which you can use radioactivity to to improve human health.
3: Thank you.
5: Thank you, uh, Dr. Dr. Albrecht. Uh, We understand that uh, radioactive waste is already a consequence of human activity in consumer society and uh, how can we make sure that uh, there is uh, no such waste uh, how do you envision uh, the community you, w- you work with as a creative society
1: so the i mean that's that's a tough question and having zero radioactive waste isn't possible for for one reason only that the into- whole universe is radioactive And so the planet's radioactive because of the uranium and thorium. Uh, You have cosmic rays uh, coming from outer space. So a zero radiation environment is impossible in this universe. So that's that's the first thing. Um, But there are many processes that we engage in that certainly create radioactive waste. And so the first thing you need to do is create what we call closed-loop nuclear processes, where you know, if you're generating energy and nuclear waste, that you're recycling as much of that nuclear waste as you can. Anything that you can get more energy out of, you get that energy out of it, and you create these closed loops so that the smallest amount of, of unusable radioactive material is coming out of the process. And then again, you trap that material in something that will never fall apart, and you put it put it in a repository. Um, so most nuclear nations are really responsible with their material. I mean, certainly there were mistakes made in the past. There's still um, a much smaller number of mistakes made today. And, you know, we've inherited this legacy. So everybody that's on this program right now, uh, we have inherited the legacy of the Cold War. And there was, um, you know, a lot of uh, poor decision-making about what to do with radioactive material. So even if we stopped, for instance, uh, generating electricity with, from nuclear power plants for generations, we're going to need researchers studying how to mitigate the effects of the Cold War, how to how to trap the material that was already released in the environment, how to slow further release, uh, and we're doing that. Uh, we're doing that worldwide. Uh, and that, that certainly needs to continue. We also need to do this in the most efficient way that we can. And so um, there are alternative nuclear technologies than the ones we use today. There are companies like Terra Power, which is one of Bill Gates' companies that are looking at, at special kinds of breeder reactors, they call them traveling wave reactors, um, that might produce much more energy and simultaneously generate much less waste. So that's one of the big paths forward is a lot of these technologies were around before I was born, and we don't move forward with them, and we don't move forward with them, not for scientific reasons, but really for for bureaucratic reasons. And so, you know, we really need um, the people of the world insisting that this kind of nonsense stops, because um, there will come a point when climate change is so significant that we we really don't have you know much of a way to deal with it anymore, and we don't want to reach that point. And so that requires us insisting that we move forward with with better nuclear technologies that produce less waste and yield more energy it's just that simple
0: thank you so much tom and i do agree that the uh, problems we have right now in a consumer type of society is leading us uh, to the you know kind of the dead end and it's on us on people to change the you know the destiny of our society And I just want to remind our viewers if they don't know about the project Creative Society. It's a project on a platform of Alatra International Public Movement. And it's a project where we uh, ask every single person around the globe. And we want to find out how do they envision a creative society. A creative society is a society where everybody is happy. A society where everyone is able to live a fulfilled life. A society where everyone has enough of resources to make their life easier so our goal is very big and uh tom i want to ask you how do you envision a creative society for yourself and also if you can tell us how do you envision a creative society for scientific
1: community as well so the key to this is communication um, you know we 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 kind of laugh about this, but it's it's absolutely true that the American people or the German people or the Russian people they pay for science to be conducted, so some portion of your taxes um, pay for science to be done so the first thing is every person has an obligation to be scientifically literate that doesn't mean you have to be a scientist, but you should strive to have. At least some understanding of physics, a little bit of understanding of biology, and a little bit of understanding of chemistry, you know for the simple reason that it's it's just wonderful to know things you know humans are are curious, but also there are people that want to mislead us and if if you have a basic knowledge of science it's a lot harder to be misled so that's that's the first thing. The second thing is historically scientists have not done a good job communicating what they do to a non-scientist and why it's important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be important because it solves the problem. I mean, we're, we are trying to put humans on Mars. I'm not sure that solves a human society problem, but this is something that people definitely want to do. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA to do things like that. And so I'm not saying you have to justify doing science, um, say by curing cancer or making a better magnet, but you do need to be able to articulate in a clear way, without any fancy words, why it's important. And so one of the things you know I've suggested and is being done, at least in some manner, is that every time a scientist publishes a paper, there needs to be an abstract written in layman's terms. In addition to the technical abstract. And I would also add um as you know as we've discussed uh, all scientific publications since they're paid for by the world's people need to be available to everybody without a paywall in between. And you know this is going to require greater funding uh for science by governments because you know publishers can't publish for free. They have to pay editors, they have to pay all the different people involved in getting these things available to the people. They're not going to do that for free. Um, even not for profits at the end of the day have to have some source of income to pay salaries. Right. Um, and so this was going to require uh, governments increasing funding so that there's never a paywall for any publication. We should all just be able to click on something that's been published see the layman's abstract, understand what the science means and why it's important, and take some pride uh, in, in that work being done. In order to accomplish that, you know everybody needs to be talking to their, you know, their representatives and saying they want access to science, that it's important to them, that they don't want somebody else that might not be scientifically literate telling them what it means, they should be able to read it themselves and know what it means on their own. And that's their responsibility to talk to their government representative. It's their responsibility to have a, uh, you know, some knowledge of science, but it's scientists' responsibility to learn how to communicate, both in writing and verbally, what they do That's in a way that everybody understands. You know, Einstein said, if you can't explain what you do to your grandmother, then you don't understand what you do. And so we just, have to, we just have to remember that.
2: So, Tom, uh, you kind of already answered the questions that I wanted to ask you. And as we've discussed in previous um, conversations, um, so you touched on unrestricted access to education and scientific literature. And you emphasized the importance of uh, self-responsibility when it comes to education. And if more people were interested in that, then there would be a further need for the people that represent our power structure uh, to give that to the people and make sure people that perform those job functions, editing and reducing the language so that everybody can understand it. uh, The people who wanted that, they can make that happen themselves. And you also discussed uh, how it's paid for by all people. Uh, And it sounds like you're as passionate about it as me, uh, as far as the unrestricted access to this information, because uh, the more that people understand this, even at a younger age will uh, uh, impart a desire to learn more about their existence and where they are. And uh, I think that's very fundamental. So, uh, you already answered that. Can you share with our audience uh, what they can do, what they can action today uh, to get that ball rolling
1: so the The wonderful thing that you learn when you 're inter- interacting with government officials is that even though we see this this show in the media where they 're saying ugly things to each other, at the end of the day they want you to vote for them and when you go to washington d c or Moscow or uh, Stockholm or wherever your your government is um, you're going to discover that those people are not elitists that they appreciate meeting with you maybe not you're not meeting with a senator themselves but you'll meet with a member of their staff you have to schedule appointments uh, and you you have a right to talk to them and you'll discover they're not intimidating that they're friendly that they really want to hear your concerns you'll see them write them down and if they're able to take action they will and the important thing is it can't just be one person so some people that are able to go meet with them in person that feel like they can communicate well enough and aren't too intimidated to do that if you have that skill set go do it you know it is their responsibility meaning elected officials responsibility to listen to their constituents this is you know you need to be self empowered in this regard if that process intimidates you too much you can write an email Every single one of these offices, including the President of the United States or every other world leader, has a way of writing to them electronically. And that's another way to do it. I've been told the most effective way to do it is to actually call. You are unlikely to speak to somebody when you call, but to leave a message. And you know they know when there's an important topic, when their you know, message thing lights up with a thousand messages from their constituents. So people need to be vocal about this. Nobody likes being deceived, and everybody likes being informed. And so, you know, you combine these together uh, with people striving to be scientifically literate and scientists striving to make their information available. Um, these publications uh, we call the currency of science. That's, that's what they are. And so once they're available and people can understand them, um, this is gonna be a better world. And in terms of a, of a more creative society, remember that science is generating new information all the time and we don't always know how that information is going to be used. So for example, the laser, which right now our computers are using lasers, our cell phone uses lasers, all of our music readers and you know, DVD players, all of those use lasers. The first publication on a laser Occupied the top quarter of a single piece of paper. It was maybe three or four paragraphs. And when it came out, people said it is a solution without a problem. Okay, meaning this is useless. And well, look look at lasers today. Um, the Same thing can be said about televisions. The same thing could be said about fission, like the one that leads to, to nuclear energy. Um, same thing could be said about antibiotics. I mean, there's, there's so many of these things that are born out of basic research where people are investigating things because they're curious about them. And as this information is more broadly available, more people are going to look at it and more light bulbs are going to turn on. They're going to have ideas. And this information will be used in ways that nobody anticipated. That's how science actually works. It's true that we have logical, really well delineated pathways to solve problems. But many of the big problems we need solved are solved in very nonlinear ways, you know, very scattered where somebody just says, aha, you know, and that requires that information being available to have those aha moments. That's why it needs to be open access, all of it. You've already paid for it. You have a right to it.
4: Yeah, I totally agree that curiosity does matter. And actually, relating to our questions, what inspires you to work or to mentor students like me? And what is the real importance in collaborating with scientists in all fields and locations around the globe? For example, so the, to create... Yeah,
1: students are the real joy. I mean, the reason I, I don't I don't come to work for any other reason than, than the students. Um, th- there are a few things as satisfying as seeing a student begin to understand a topic and start to really take control over their own education and their own professional dent uh, destiny. And so, you know, that's my job to provide an environment where they can make those discoveries. So I'm a largely hands-off advisor. You know, I, I've, I've created a, a beautiful scientific facility with state-of-the-art instrumentation and access um, to elements that, that are difficult to have access to. And I give my students very basic frameworks to work within, and then I let them be the creators of the information so they get to decide where their project goes they get to decide what's important to them and what interests them so you know if a student comes into my office and they say you know i have you know i've made this observation do i do this or that with it i get they get the same response from me every time i tell them it's not my project it's your project you need to make that decision and they, they actually, they will never get an answer other than that from me. So, you know, we need to teach people, um, you know, to follow what interests them. You know, if, if you like things that change color, by God, study things that change color. If you like, you know, things that make electricity, study that. And, um, and, and it just, it's so much gratification when you see them become the thing that they wanted to become, you know, whether it's becoming a doctor or a dentist or a nuclear scientist, or, or or maybe not even in science at all. I, I have a good friend that even though she has a PhD in chemistry, she's a journalist now. And her science background really, you know, helps her a lot uh, in that area. And so whatever pathway you take, science literacy is really helpful. And as a professor, it should always be about the students. Uh, it's, it's not about, you know, winning awards or having 500 publications. It's about helping students achieve their goals. And it's, uh, that's the reward in and of itself.
0: That's awesome, thank you so much. And can you tell us a little bit more about a scientists working together in a global community? And I know you were able to assemble a team of 17 scientists that are actually working together right now, is that right?
1: Um, yeah, so the, the center that I run, the Center for Actinide Science and Technology, It's what's called an Energy Frontier Research Center. So those are a group of centers uh, funded by the United States Department of Energy. And as a whole, we're trying to solve different energy problems. Like some of the centers are trying to create um, solar fuels. In other words, you take light and you create some kind of fuel like hydrogen, for example, that can be used in a different process some of the centers like the one i'm in are trying to clean up the environment from the legacy of the cold war or make nuclear energy a more efficient process so the thing that unites all of the energy frontier research centers is just that energy some kind of energy so what we've done in my center um, is you know we decided that something like an advanced waste form say for trapping plutonium so that it never gets out in the environment that that problem can't be solved solely by chemists. We decided that that problem really needed to be solved. Some aspects needed to be solved by chemists, but other aspects by physicists, other aspects by material scientists. And if you're gonna understand all of that, you need the best theoreticians in the world to understand the origin of everything that you're seeing. And so what our center does is it amalgamates all of these different disciplines into a single unit and what we do is we choose a target, like we want a resilient material or we want something that selectively extracts plutonium from nuclear waste. Uh, and we pick that problem, and then we assemble the team of scientists that has the right skill set to tackle the problem. And we bring them together in, in one cohesive unit. And it requires a center. So these are such big problems. You can't do them with one or two scientists. You need dozens of scientists. The center contains many, many students. So a significant aspect of the center is training the next generation of, of nuclear scientists. And so we have oh, typically around 50 students and postdocs in the center. And they're going on to amazing careers. You know, one of them uh, was involved in the power source that powered the Cassini mission that went out, you know, to Saturn. And uh, so they do... They do amazing things. It's, you know, my group, you know, we try to grow these teeny tiny little crystals that contain radioactive elements to understand the properties. And it's neat to see them progress from those tiny little crystals that I so desire to a probe launching into outer space. I mean, that's the progression that some of these students have taken. And so, you know, I'm very proud of their accomplishments. Yeah.
3: Thank you, Dr. Albrecht. Uh, for such an interesting interview, and uh, what can, how can you encourage, and what do you want to wish or to tell to our audience all around the world?
1: I would say, never give up learning. You know, stay curious. If you see something you don't understand, don't ignore it. You know, try to understand it. If you read something and it bothers you, like you read it, you ah, that can't be true or, you know, look it up, find the, find the actual facts. So you, you should all be seekers of truth. You should all be supporters of people that are trying to search for the truth. Uh, and if you do that, we will have a better society and certainly a more compassionate society too.
5: And uh, we have uh, one more question, Dr. Albrecht. Uh, Uh, What do each one of us can do to build a science and creative society to to become a reality today?
1: Well, the first thing is um, As I said, you need to keep learning Uh, You know, there are many courses that can be done online now Uh, many Extraordinarily prestigious universities even offer these for free. So, you know become Become a dedicated lifelong learner. Don't have have gaps. Um, there are amazing blogs you can listen to while you're doing a long car trip, or maybe you're on a plane flight. Um, you know, don't turn these into. If you have free time, turn it into useful time, where you're where you're constantly uh, where you're constantly learning. Um, make sure that you under, Make sure that you are conveying to elected officials that you support scientific discovery and that you understand that basic science leads to applied science and that betters, uh, that betters human life in, in general, not just by what we know, but by what we can do for each other. And so that's what, that's what I would encourage you to do. Never stop learning and make it clear to the people that make these decisions that you want this done. And, and we'll, we'll move forward from that.
5: Thank you very much and uh, also we have uh, one more question from our viewers and we would like to ask you uh, the first question is uh, uh, about the protection of uh, radiation and uh, uh, can we uh, imagine uh, the nanomaterial that uh, uh, have a very uh, protective qualities that uh, have a very high protective quality but uh, very thin. No, no. Can we create uh, in the future maybe? From.
1: Um, uh, if it was very thin, it's unlikely it could uh, deal with gamma rays very well, uh, or neutrons very well. But but certainly beta particles, uh, positrons, uh, alpha particles uh, could be done with a thin material, if. The really high-energy things, um, like gamma rays and x-rays, they really do need a lot of heavy atoms to absorb them. Right now, I don't think we have a different solution than that. Um, Neutrons, it's simply a matter of the neutron colliding with enough light atoms. And so, again, you're going to need hydrogen atoms for that primarily. So it's going to very much depend on what the problem is. In some cases, the answer is yes. It can definitely be accomplished with a thin layer of aluminum is enough to, to stop uh, alpha particles and beta particles for the most part, but that's not going to work for other forms. And so th- that's, again, a good example of why you want, you know, basic knowledge of, of science is that if somebody told you, uh, you know, they have a sample of something that's highly radioactive, but don't worry, they put a layer of aluminum around it, you could immediately respond with, well, what kind of radiation is it emitting? You know, is that, is that sufficient for that kind of radiation? And, um, and it's not going to take a lot of work to become, scientifically literate enough to to accomplish
3: that goal. And we have one more question. For example, how do you think, uh, or you can imagine, if you will have such a material uh, made from neutrons? So it seems that uh, this material, thin material or thick material will reflect these neutrons. How do you think, is it possible to have such a material?
1: Made um, from neutrons. Her, her, yeah, so, yeah, so. Uh, beryllium, which is a very light element, is a pretty good neutron reflector. Um, there are a few light elements uh, like boron that can absorb uh, neutrons well. Uh, we use them for moderating reactors. Even graphite, which is a pencil lead, does a does an okay job. But it would depend on how much radioactive material you're talking about. If it's a big source, it's going to take a lot of shielding. If it's something small. Maybe a thin layer of boron or graphite will work. Um, Beryllium is different. Even though beryllium does a great job reflecting neutrons back in, you want to put some thought into whether that material you're using is hazardous itself. So beryllium is highly toxic. Um, It is the most toxic element from a non-radioactive standpoint. It's still extraordinarily useful for all kinds of applications, but I wouldn't want it being used widespread to reflect neutrons. Um, boron totally safe obviously carbon completely safe and so you know a layer of graphite um, would certainly impart some good neutron absorbing characteristics but at the same time a layer of graphite will do nothing to stop gamma rays so again you know that's a case where you would want to put some thought into what you used um, to block the radiation. Thank you so much and we
0: are coming to the end here and I actually had one more question before we go and can you please tell us Tom what part does moral values play in science and how important it is to develop personally develop them and how important it is to have them and implement them in science
1: so there are two sides to that but i'll start off by saying morals and ethics are critical in science and i think they're sometimes neglected and it hurts science Uh, specifically, it hurts the scientists specifically, and there are much broader societal uh, consequences. So, you know, a lot of people are ambitious, and and ambition is a double-edged sword. It's ambitious to want to run the fastest mile or cure cancer. Um, Those are very positive forms of ambition, but there are, of course, very bad forms of ambition. And Scientists are human beings, and sometimes the bad forms come out, and there is a small amount of scientific fraud. Um, so it's very important early on that we impart in scientists the consequences of not following scientific ethics perfectly. You should, As I tell my group, you should never be in a shade of gray. It, this is black and white. You're either doing it right ethically or you're not doing it right ethically. And, you know, I, I even as, as my son was growing up and was asking questions about whether he could do this or that, he got the same answer. It should never be gray, right? It's either right or it's wrong. Make sure you're on the right side of things. So we do need to do a better job instilling, um, in scientists that ethics are really, really important. You know, downstream there can be really important consequences, uh, the, the same scientists that invented tetraethyl lead, I don't know if all of you remember that, but it was an additive in gasoline that prevented engines from knocking, this kind of banging sound they'll make. But it was spraying lead all over the environment, right? Okay, so maybe you want to think about something like that. They knew lead was toxic back then. They knew lead would be sprayed out the tailpipes. Maybe they should have thought about the long-term consequences before we poisoned the sides of our roadways with wet. Um, there are other ones. You could point to DDT. So DDT did an amazing job killing mosquitoes. Uh, malaria is among the most lethal of all things on Earth. I think it's responsible for more deaths than anything. Um... And, you know, malaria is primarily a mosquito-borne illness. So you might say to yourself, well, if DDT kills mosquitoes, we ought to use it. But we know that DDT almost wiped out all bird life on Earth uh, by making the, the the shells of eggs uh, so brittle that when the parents tried to sit on the eggs, they just break. So um, we need to think about the long-term consequences. Right now... Um, bayer uh the large chemical company you know bought monsanto and monsanto was is responsible for these various um, plant killing agents uh, and you know it appears there are significant consequences to those glyc glycoside um, type agents so there are very responsible companies that needed to be pointed to so for example um, these uh, stain repellents, one of which was called Scotchgard. You know, you could spray it on your carpet so your carpet never got dirty. So you can still buy those, but you can't buy them from 3M. So 3M is one of these very responsible companies. It found out that some of these anti-stain agents did not degrade very well in the environment. It started seeing them in water samples, and even though it never determined that they had a detrimental effect to anything. It said, if they're not degrading, we're not making them anymore. So when you get those those protective uh, those stain repellers, they aren't coming from 3M because that's a good example of a company that that is ethical and moral and thinks about long-term consequences. So we need to be encouraging that in scientists, but we also need to be encouraging that in companies in companies that use science to make products. And uh, you know, and there are other morals too, which is you know, be, beyond ethics, you know, should you be participating in in uh, creating things that are destructive to human beings? And you need to ask yourself that question if you're in an area of research that could hurt people, you know, are you doing it for the right reasons? And, you know, this is, you shouldn't be a mindless robot. You know, you have you have control over your destiny. That's
0: awesome. Thank you so much for your answer. And I do agree that, You know, in all areas of our life, we just have to be human and we have to think about humanity and the value of human life first. And then we can, you know, think about profits and, you know, keeping, um, you know, salaries or, you know, some financing going. But the human life should remain first um, kind of basis for everything that we do as a society. And we thank you so much, Tom, for being with us today. And we also are thankful for our audience that sent us questions and actively participated in our interview. And Tom, we will be very happy to see you again and continue the conversation. And also, we have a little gift for you as a gift of appreciation. We will email you and send you a hard copy of the Promoedal Alatra Physics Report that was published in 2015, and we sincerely hope and believe that it can help you in your work and studies in order to make a great breakthrough in sciences.
1: Inside. That's really appreciated.
0: <laughs> and we're also happy to continue this type of open communication with your colleagues and friends that also have something to share with us about science advances. So please invite them uh, to communicate with us also. And we just like to continue this on. And uh, we know that you know this type of communication create, creates a wave of positive change for the whole uh, you know global community as well and thank you so much for being with us today thank you so much for our viewers it was a very interesting interview and we hope to see everyone in the next program of science in the creative society till next time goodbye Bye. Hmm?
5: thank you very much
0: thank you